name, amen. Well, one of the many fun things that you get from the experience of parenting small children, as I do, in fact, my small children are over here to my right this morning, is that you get to experience a lot of generational differences in just about everything. So you get differing advice about how to be a parent from people depending on what generation they come from, because parenting advice tend to change as time went on. Uh, You get a chance to watch cartoons that range from the latest, like, ninja cartoons, which our kids should watch far less of, to old cartoons, you know, things from the 20s, from Tom and Jerry, uh, which has very different kind of worldviews, and they're all there, they're all being marketed to your kids, and so it's like a little time capsule in parenting right there. Not that long ago, my wife Grace and I felt transported to a whole different sort of pre-Depression era America when we saw this particular famous cartoon with our kids, for instance, which applies to what we'll talk about today. Take a look. I like how his piano is made out of bricks. It's the little things you notice when you watch this thing 873 times, as I have. Um, It seems to me that this is a product of what you call the builder generation, the generation that came before the boomers, uh, the generation that went through the Depression, the generation that had to worry about the wolf coming to your door in a way that hasn't quite been true in the same way since. And it seems like the builder generation and preceding generations were the ones that really honed this thing we call the Protestant work ethic, which became such a central part of how America got formed. That all seemed to get called into question by the 60s when the boomers began noticing the chinks in the armor of the Protestant work ethic, like the fact that dads often were absent because their job was to be a provider because you wanted to keep the wolf from coming to your door. And so in providing, they often weren't around much. And so absent dads caused its own set of problems. And there began to be a reevaluation of, is life really about just working all the time and never stopping? Is that the most godly way to live? Is constant work? Um, there's a lot to be said, again, for the Protestant work ethic. But, and uh, with all its downsides, it also seems true to me that we've never really gotten it out of our system as a whole. We're still very much shaped by it, for good or ill, in our country. A few years back, my family... Uh, shared a wall with condo mates next to us. And these were just fascinating folks, really fun, and they worked really hard. So the dad uh, was, uh, they had young kids just like we did. We kind of bonded over that. The dad was a management consultant and was on the road about half the time. uh, So he would miss about three or four nights a week from being home. And um, his wife was a professor actually at the Sloan School of, is it management at MIT or economics uh, at MIT? And uh, so she worked fairly hard as well. And we would have dinner with them, and we would hear from her again and again and again about how miserable she was and how she wanted to quit. And so we asked her, well, how did you uh, become a a professor at Sloan? Uh, How'd that happen? Particularly since it doesn't seem to be something you actually want to do. And she said, well, I guess I was just good at math. And so I was always good at math, and then I kept taking math in college, and then I thought, since it's the only thing I was good at, I thought I would take math in graduate school, and pretty soon I needed to get a job, and the the best uh, school for my particular niche of economics was Sloan, and I got a job there, which is the top of my field, and so I just took it, and now I'm there, but I hate it. And I said, so what's so bad about it? And she said, well, if you really want to know what's so bad about it, I'll give you a book to read, uh, and then you can come back and we'll talk about it. I thought, wow, it takes a whole book to answer that question. Okay. And um, she handed me a book that was a fascinating memoir about a woman who was a seven-year student at Harvard. So Harvard's going to come out badly in this story. If you're part of Harvard, just cover your ears for a minute, because we love you in the end. We really love you. You're great, but you're the villain of this story. And um, 
The book is all about how at Harvard, this woman had discovered it was driven, workaholic, anti-family. And so uh, she'd been an undergraduate there and then was getting her PhD there while her husband was also doing studies there and working as a management consultant, coincidentally enough. And um, so she got pregnant with her first child while she was in her PhD program. And she talks about how every single person she talked to, from students to professors, strongly encouraged her to abort the child, that the child would just get in the way of her career. If she really wanted a career, she couldn't have this child. Well, she had the child. And then she got pregnant with a second child, and this child had Down syndrome, they discovered, while um, he was in the womb. And everyone unanimously said, you'd be insane to bring a Down uh, syndrome child into the world, uh, and it would, it's, it's suicide to your career. Meanwhile, her husband is on all these business trips where children are never mentioned, where the only thing that comes up is work, success, and getting ahead. And finally, they just eject themselves out of the system. They think they can't do it anymore. They move away. And that's the, the end of the book is they get out. They escape the prison of Harvard. So you now can uncover your ears. It all will be good. We love you. We love you from here, here this point out. So anyway, I go and talk to uh, uh, my neighbor, and I say, hey, I read the book. And is that your experience at Sloan? Is that why you feel like you've got to get out? And she said, that is, that's totally my experience. It's workaholic. I've got to get out. And it's, it's, it's inhuman. And so I said, wow, so I'll pray for you guys for that. And so did, and she did quit. And then, I'm not quite sure how this followed her logic, she almost immediately enrolled in medical school afterwards. But wow, so that was your plan, was to get out of the rat race, and medical school was your way out. Wow. That's kind of a unique, a unique system. Um, well, we're in the second week of a series on this pithy opening summary of this whole Old Testament legal code, which are these famous Ten Commandments, the Ten Paths to a Thriving Life that God used to introduce his whole system uh, of a legal code in the Old Testament, just these ten things. And last week, we looked at the first three of these, which had to do with our attitudes and behavior towards God himself. Um, which were uh, helpful in understanding sort of the backdrop to it. And we realize, at least I realize as I look at them, it seems to me that they are a surprising set of Ten Commandments. On the one hand, we'd think, well, they're pretty obvious. Things like don't kill anybody, that seems fair enough. Until you realize that actually they kind of intricately work together to provide a whole view of life that actually isn't quite so obvious. And I think case in point is the next commandment, the first kind of non-God commandment that we see, which is a big, big deal in the Old Testament, and yet seems sort of foreign to our ears. And here is what it is. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but, on the, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This rule of life, again, can strike us as kind of unexpected. To do some sort of godly rest one day a week. And yet, what's funny about this one is this becomes, if you keep reading the Old Testament, the mark of being one of God's people, that you are a Sabbath keeper. That's how people know you're one of those God people. That's the thing. And you think, really, this day off a week, a day of resting, is the mark of being a follower of God. It got so severe, if you keep reading, that people would be executed if they didn't keep the Sabbath in that part of the, uh, our godly history. If you look at the rest of the Bible, it comes up in a broader sense. Suddenly this theme of what rest looks like becomes a fairly big theme related to Sabbath as the Bible progresses. And so we get scriptures like the next few on your program. 
Psalm 127 says, It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. For God gives rest to his loved ones. So a certain sort of workaholism is not encouraged here. Then we get this from Isaiah. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. So we don't find salvation in doing. We find salvation seemingly in rest, quietness, trust. Huh. Jesus picks up this theme by saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find, if you come to me, rest for your souls. And then this theme gets sort of an odd but powerful climax in this book right near the end of the Bible called Hebrews with this. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who formerly heard the good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his place of rest, and that time is today. As if God's rest is something we can walk into. As if it's something like a state of being. In fact, you get this uh, one translation gives us the strange advice that we're supposed to strive to enter God's rest. We're supposed to work hard to get this thing called rest, which I'm not sure if I follow it, but on the other hand, it seems to tell us it's an important thing. We should really prioritize it. So if the godly person here knows how to receive some sort of state of rest, what's life like for the ungodly person? How do we know which one we are? Well, it seems like ungodly people here, according to these scriptures, have a few common characteristics. Uh, When we're ungodly, we're anxious and burdened and weary. We're tuckered out and we're afraid. It can be hard to get off this treadmill of workaholism or burden or anxiety and move into the kind of rest that the Ten Commandments seem to see as defining God's people. Why do we lean towards being not restful, being a little harder working than is actually healthy for us? Uh, One reason, I think, is anxiety, as the psalmist and Jesus both point out. We're afraid of what will happen as we slow down. Um, I remember the first person I ever saw who took this commandment to take a Sabbath seriously. I was in school, and it was a fairly demanding school at the time, and everyone had homework all the time, and you're working like crazy to get ahead on the tests. And uh, this young classmate of mine took a Sabbath day. She took a day off on her Sundays and did no schoolwork. And I I never even heard of that. That seemed like such a strange thought. And so I asked her why she did it. And she said, well, it's actually one of the Ten Commandments. And so I'm just trying to live by that. And uh, I said, well, how on earth? You're you're just suicidal. I mean, we all have more work than we can possibly do, even if we work seven days. So how can you take a whole day, not even just a few hours, the entire day off and hope to keep up? And she said, well, Dave, I guess the idea of this commandment is that God takes up the slack. In other words, that if we do it, he'll come through for us. And that just seems so odd. So God is going to do your work for you that you would otherwise have to do. Okay, I mean, fine. And then she graduated with honors, did better than me, and laughed at me on her way to the podium, and it was just really quite a moment. Um, So maybe she had a point. I guess God picked up the slack, and by the end, I was even trying to emulate her. Um, I wonder if even with the anxiety, if shame, which is not included here on my little list, but it's sort of related, if shame can keep us from keeping a Sabbath, because we actually feel ashamed of all that's left undone. We have to kind of catch up before we can feel calm enough to even do something like a Sabbath. Anyway, I also wonder if self-image can drive us towards a bit more of a driven lifestyle than we would otherwise do. I wonder if we're afraid of being seen as lazy or feeling lazy. I know I can feel that way sometimes. I know lots of people in lots of jobs 
were appearing, at the very least, to be the hardest working person there, is fairly central to their ability to be promoted, to, to get, get ahead. And so self-image can keep us from slowing down in that sense. Maybe in that same spirit, I wonder if we do it because everyone else does it. If we just have no models, as I had no models of anyone who would slow down until I met this woman who did this weird Sabbath thing instead of studying. Um, uh, a friend of uh, ours, one of our pastors, is preaching this at our Boston site today, and so she and I were brainstorming this talk. And she was saying, you know, I look around me, and modern life conspires against me in this thing, because I can be a little driven. And she said, well, laptop computers. I love laptops, because what they communicate to me is, I can do my work anywhere at any time. I don't have to even be at a per certain place. Cell phones, I'm always reachable, and I can always make a call. Caffeine. You know, if I'm a little run down, no problem. That's what Starbucks is there for. That'll solve that. I can keep going beyond my physical limits. And she said, you know, obviously in an earlier era, I suppose even electricity would do it because you would have to, prior to that, live with the rhythms of the day and night, which puts you in a certain pattern. But now, no problem. We can work all night uh, and keep going wherever we are. I think God is a fairly straightforward tip as our first way into experiencing all the larger blessings of rest that are so central in the larger Bible. And the tip is, as we've been saying, take a Sabbath from your work one day a week. So on that day, the idea is that you don't get anything done that forwards your work goals, or I suppose your home improvement goals. Um, it's really astounding how needed and transforming I've discovered this thing to be that initially struck me as so extreme. So a few months back, I had... Um, uh, a great opportunity given me that actually cost me a bit on the Sabbath front. Uh, I was invited with just a few other people, it was sort of an exclusive invitation, to join with other pastors of a certain sort of church, uh, with a, a pastor of a large, large church in the Midwest, actually the largest church in the vineyard, and, uh, and one of the most prominent, obviously, that has a ton to teach. And we would just gather and have sort of a little seminar together on how to do church better from people who presumably should know. It was going to focus on management issues and just kind of how to manage a growing church and how that, you know, how to do it. But what an opportunity. So, of course, I said yes. I took two of our staff with us. And the day that was proposed for it was a Monday, which is traditionally the Sabbath day for pastors who work on Sundays. And I actually really need Mondays, as do almost all pastors. One of the strange things about my job that you might not guess is how worn out pastors tend to be by the end of a weekend. I mean, you would think, what on earth do you do all week, Dave, except for this talk? And I'm sure there's lots of sports on television, but except for that, I mean, what on earth do you possibly do with your time? Strangely enough, we do have a few more things to do than that. And by the end of a, a Sunday, we can often feel just trash and Mondays are like restorative time. So this meant I didn't get a Sabbath and neither did the pastors that I was traveling with. And so that actually had embarrassing consequences for me. So we arrive at, we've flown all night Sunday and we get to our hotel and we, um, get up early Monday morning. We go to this early morning meeting to do an all-day kind of symposium on these questions. And um, it begins by everyone going around the room and just sort of very briefly saying, hi, my name is so-and-so. My church is, is such such a place. I, here's my, a little bit about my family. My wife's name is X, and I have this many kids, and that's it. We kind of move around. I am totally trash. I'm completely out of it. And so I'm listening to these people kind of drone on, and the person in front of me says, hi, I'm, you know, Biff, and I'm from, you know, Bali, or, and uh, I uh, have so many, uh, I have a wife, and I have three kids, and that's me. And it comes to me, and I'm just sort of remembering what he said, and I'm kind of just trying to get past this moment. I say, hi, my name's Dave. I'm from uh, Cambridge. We also have a church in Boston. And uh, my wife's name is Grace, and I have three kids, because he said he had three kids. And, um, and 
one of our pastors like catches my eye and his eyebrow raises a bit. I say, did I say something funny? And I think, oh, I have five kids. And so I say, you know, I was probably just listening to the person in front of me. I'm sorry. I actually have five kids, embarrassingly enough. And um, never actually done that before. But anyway, I do. Sorry. And um, I get teased mercilessly about this the rest of the day from all these people I don't even know. And so pretty much I become the touch point of whatever comes up during the day. So someone will say, oh, in your church, how do you manage X problem? And the person will say, you know, actually, I don't know the answer to that question, much like Dave doesn't know how many children he has. That would kind of be the, the running sort of theme of the day. And, I, and the bitterness is rising up within me because I'm saying by the end of the day, first off, I just want to say, everybody in this room is a Sabbath breaker. Much like I myself am today, and look what it's cost me, your scorn. Because I was not restored in the way God set up for me to be. So what might we keep in mind as we Sabbath? Here's a few things I think you might want to keep in mind. The first is, leave your work behind. That's kind of the bottom line, right? So we get this in the the, the commandment itself. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh. Um, a few years back, I found myself in a place where I was totally fried. I get that way sometimes. Maybe you do. Where I just felt like my resources were really low. I felt exhausted. I felt drained. And I realized I'd felt it at least for several weeks, if not months. And uh, I had a Sabbath. And so on this Monday, I was out and I was praying about it a bit. And I said, God, I'm just totally torched. I don't know how I got in this place. Any suggestions? And sometimes, as I mentioned to some of you, it seems like God at least gives me impressions when I ask him questions like that. And I quickly got this impression. Dave, I'll tell you Why? You're so fried. It's because you're a Sabbath breaker. What did you expect? And I protested vehemently. I wasn't a Sabbath breaker. I was there. For instance, it was a Sabbath I was doing right then. And I was pretty faithful to do them. So I was not a Sabbath breaker. That was not true. And God said something profound to me. I felt like he said, well, what do you do, for instance? How do you spend your time on a Sabbath? And I thought, well, I don't know. I'll hang out with my kids a little bit, and then they'll go to school, and I'll hang out with Grace some, and then I'll you know, take off and maybe read the Bible a little bit, and read a book, and pray a bit. And that's kind of, I don't know, that's about it. And I felt as though God said, yeah, what do you pray about? And I thought, uh-oh, he's got me. Because I thought, the church, that's all I ever pray about because I'm anxious about it. And so that whatever the questions were of the day, I would go out and pray through. And I felt as though God said, Sabbath breaker, Sabbath breaker. This is not a chance for you to have reflective time about your work. Your work happens on the other days of the week. And now this day of the week is about reflecting to really recharge, to work more. It's not about that. Leave it behind, drop it you got to figure out another whole rhythm. You are doing the very thing I commanded you not to do in a kind of a spiritual form. And that's why you're reaping the fruit of that, which is you are burned out. It's about Sabbath. And it was totally true. I had to revisit my understanding of what Sabbath was, and that addressed my burnout. So leave your work behind. Second, limit your agendas. So this may not be the best time to finish that last load of wash or get to that tax prep that's been sitting around. You need to do that. That, again, is the point of Sabbath. Six days you shall work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of rest, holy to the Lord. Agendas tend to work against that. Um, Third, think rest over amusement. Not to say that amusement can't be perfectly appropriate to rest, but maybe you get a feel for me in saying that not all amusement restores us. Um, You know, maybe six hours in front of the TV would do it, or maybe six hours in front of the TV would amuse you but leave you just as it wouldn't restore you in any particular way. Um, that's not to say fun things won't be involved. I uh, have told some of you that there was a time in my life where I had um, 
lots of things in my life fell apart. I'd been working in sort of the arts world. It was having its challenges, as people working in the arts world often discover. Uh, a lot of my friends had moved out of the area that I was living in. A church that I was involved in had actually collapsed and disbanded. And um, my work itself uh, to make money was uh, very nice people were involved, but the work itself was fairly tedious. And so I just found myself feeling gloomy. And I felt as though God said, this is a chance to learn about rest, the sort of rest you can walk into. And it all starts with Sabbath. And so I felt he reminded me to take Sabbath and then also to learn Sabbath as sort of a day-by-day experience. Well, one nice thing about the, the, the job I was working was that it had flexible hours. And so I could pretty much come in at my own discretion. And so long as I got my work done, I could leave whenever I wanted. And that was fine. That was appropriate to the job. And so one day I was praying about this, even kind of half-heartedly as I was doing tedious labor. And I felt as though God said, like now, leave, just leave and uh, do something different. Get restored with me. Learn how to rest. I thought, okay, fine. And so I left. And in this case, I felt like God said, let's catch a movie. So I thought, all right, well, let's go see this movie. I saw a movie with God. That was great. And I enjoyed it. It was fun. And I was trying just to learn how to kind of, as we'll talk about in a minute, talk a bit with God, learn how to hear back from him. And I was doing that. So it was done, and I still had more time. And I felt as though he said, well, what do you want to do? I thought, well, I love bookstores. And so I went to a bookstore, and that was great. Uh, I didn't have any money then, so of course I couldn't buy any books. But then uh, I saw a book that interested me, and I felt as though God said, I'm rich, buy the book. I got plenty of money. So I thought, okay, and bought the book, and that was great. And just learned how to have a rhythm of relating to God in things that were about rest. Uh, It was funny, when I met Grace, again, my wife, I discovered she had a similar habit with mine that was very femme. It seemed very threatening to me to do anything like she did, too feminine. She had what she called a date day with God. And so uh, I, I just want to tell you right now, I have never called my Sabbath a date day with God. I, just want to, I have never done that. She carried a little notebook that was embossed with like little raised flowers with her. I've never done that. Um, and um, she, her habit was she would take a bus to this big park in San Francisco, Golden Gate Park, where we were living at the time. And it's a beautiful park, if you've ever been there. It's beautiful. And she would hang out there and just enjoy nature, journal, take walks, read books. And that's what she would do. And I thought, a kindred spirit. The idea of Sabbaths, again, is that they're fundamentally relational uh, times with God, which takes us to number four, talk with God as much as you can on a Sabbath. Um, talk with him. See if you can cultivate a dialogue with God. Sabbaths are a great time for that. Often in Sabbaths, they're a helpful time of being still, of kind of quieting just the sort of worrying, spinning feeling our lives can so often have, and being quiet and still and hearing from God, often and hearing just from our own hearts with God interpreting about what's actually happening for us. We often realize on Sabbaths, if they're going well, that there's a lot more to celebrate in our lives than we've noticed that there's been good happening to us that we hadn't even really seen because we were so revved up, it didn't, we didn't even notice. And so it's the Sabbath time where we'll suddenly say, well, actually, God, that was pretty encouraging this week. Thanks a lot for that. We can almost review our week. Oftentimes, we'll get in touch with what our soul is really crying out for. So it's on Sabbath where I'll say to God, I'm burned out, as I did before. Hey, I'm a little more fried than I thought I was. Sometimes on a recent Sabbath, I was just being really still, and I had a thought that I had not thought at all for a long time. And I suddenly thought, you know what I want? Literature, like classic literature. And I thought, you know, I do a lot of reading, like a lot of uh, uh, my friends. As I've gotten older, I read less and less fiction because it seems a little trivial. So I read nonfiction to learn things about the world. Hard facts, that's what I want. But I used to read a lot of fiction. And when I do read fiction now, sometimes it's fairly light contemporary fiction. And suddenly I thought, you know what I want? 
Dickens. That's what I want. I want someone who's really thought deeply about people and then is presenting rich storylines about actual people actually going through things that have stood the test of time. And so I sort of on a whim went out and bought David Copperfield, which is long enough that any, on any sane reading schedule, I will finish it in about the year 2025. I think right around October it'll be done. Um, long book. And I sat down and I just spent some time with David Copperfield. I got back that day and Grace said, hey, how was your Sabbath? I said, that was the best day I've had in six months. Just sitting down with that. And I wouldn't have even thought it going into the day. It was just that quietness, that a conversation with God, that being still, that kind of lets us know what's really happening for us, which I think is a key part of um, what Sabbath is about. I have found this to be a new year of Sabbath for me. Even in, as I was on our Christmas break, I was on vacation, and I was getting kind of still, and I was realizing, you know, I want to rethink a Sabbath lifestyle in a fresh way for 2007. I just do. And so I kind of rejiggered some of my work hours a bit just for the first month to see how, I'd, how that would feel if I tried this rather than this. And I found a place of more rest and stillness. What would that do for me? And here's what I've discovered, and the, the early returns have been good. Um, I find when people come up and ask me how I am, which of course happens all the time in just human society, that my classic way to answer is to try to be honest but put the most positive, brief spin on whatever is honest. And so, as opposed to saying, how are you, Dave? It's rare that I will say, you know, I'm filled with dread about the future today. Thank you for asking. Just filled with dread. <laughs> so you gotta, so you gotta run, though. You know, I don't say that. It may be true. I put the most positive spin that I can on whatever's real. And so that usually comes out as, I'm doing well, thank you. I appreciate you asking. I'm doing fine, those sorts of, that sort of language. Now, in the last month, for the most part, when people said, how are you? I've sort of, against my will, found myself saying, I'm fabulous. I'm great. I'm awesome. And I think it's all about rest. Because God's rest, walking into that state of being, which we're told in Hebrews, is the single most valuable thing that we should strive to get. Hey, what do you know? It's really powerful. It's really good stuff. You know, I, I think back to our three little pigs. I think to myself, well, compared to the lazy dancing brother pigs, that working pig was probably the smart one. Hard work, on six days you shall labor, good for him. But you do get the feeling he could, he could use a Sabbath. That's sort of my feeling. He, he just needs to slow down, although maybe that's what the piano, that brick piano is all about. Maybe that's Sabbath for him. In repentance and rest is your salvation, we're told. In quietness and trust is your strength. Hey, let's pray together that could be more and more true for us even this week. Stand with me if you would. Father God, I ask for your power to come right now. I just ask for Holy Spirit power, even around this issue of Sabbath. Because overwork can be almost a, a spirit that, that enslaves us. And I break a spirit of anxiety. I break a spirit of overwork. Not hard work, which on six days we're supposed to labor, that's good, but of overwork, of our wheels never stopping spinning, of the plates never stopping spinning. I break that spirit in Jesus' name. And Lord, by your mighty power, would you send a spirit of rest upon us now, Lord, in Jesus' name, of Sabbath rest, of the thing which you say more than any other thing marks us as your people, whether we are Sabbath keepers or Sabbath breakers. God, would you just recreate something fresh for those of us who feel something stirring in us around this? This week, will you recreate rest for us in a fresh way? Will you recreate a valid day of Sabbath for us weekly, that suddenly does all the things Sabbath is supposed to do. Would you bring that to pass, Lord, in Jesus' name? We invite your fresh wind, your fresh work here. And Lord, I just get the feeling for some of us, we feel a little outside of this whole experience because we're still saying, I'm not sure 
what I think about this God or what I think about Jesus. Father, for those of us in that situation, I pray for a fresh word from you, for encouragement, for spiritual power, for something right now which is new and unexpected and fresh. Would you do that, Lord, in Jesus' name?